Well, good morning. It's great to see everybody and be back. And just a wonderful place to be. And thanks for sharing your praises to God so we can all worship Him in that. Okay, Ellen told me, wear a brighter shirt this week, so. <laughs> okay, Ellen. So I did. <laughs> I'm matching the carpet. It is great to be here, although it, it's a little unsettling to talk about finding joy in persecution. So um, I told Ted I have a little fear if our country's ever persecuted and you see me running the other way, you'll be going, you talked about having joy. So we're going to do our best. We are sitting still with the king on the mountaintop along the Sea of Galilee for the next few weeks. We are listening to the words of Jesus to learn what it means to live like a wise disciple. And we talked last week how he was the promised Messiah. He was the king that was to come. And he is calling Israel to embrace his righteousness. He wants to pull them away from their dead, corrupt religious system that had done something very sad in their lives. It had made them become self-righteous. And so that's why when John the Baptist came on the scene, his word was, repent. And Jesus' first words after his temptation were, repent, because repentance is the first step to realizing our need for true righteousness and laying aside our own self-righteousness. We looked at seven of the eight Beatitudes last week. We learned that a wise disciple recognizes their need for God. And we looked at how if we realize I'm poor in spirit, I'm, I'm in poverty, I need Christ, then we learn in those Beatitudes that then God can fill us with mercy, compassion, his presence, intimacy. And Jesus called that true happiness. And this last beatitude is also about happiness. In fact, it basically says about persecution, happy are the harassed. And this is as hard for us to understand as what it was last week until we got deeper into it. On this hillside, Jesus wants his disciples to understand something very important. It will not always be this peaceful. In fact, one Roman poet described early Christians as the panting, huddling flock whose only crime was Christ. In the first two Beatitudes, Jesus says, recognize your own unrighteousness. In the next five Beatitudes, he says, take upon my righteousness And in the final beatitude, he says, you will suffer for the sake of my righteousness. Now, you and I know the word persecution can mean different things. If I said, if I was in North Korea today and I said they're being persecuted, it stirs up a whole different mindset than if I'm here in America and I say Susie's being persecuted. We think of something totally different. And so one magazine did this for us. They made degrees of persecution. I want to read those real quickly. 
Number one, disapproval. Number two, ridicule. Number three, pressure to conform. Number four, loss of educational opportunities. Five, economic problems. Six, shunning. Seven, community alienation. Eight, loss of employment. Nine, loss of property. Ten, physical abuse. Eleven, mob violence. Twelve, harassment by officials. Thirteen, kidnapping. Fourteen, forced labor. Fifteen, imprisonment. 16, physical torture, 17, murder. Now, in America, I think we go to about number three, disapproval, ridicule, pressure to conform. Maybe sometimes the next ones, loss of educational opportunities, economic problems, maybe. But in America, we're kind of looking at those top three. In North Korea, in China, in Afghanistan, in more countries than we can even imagine. They are at number 17, and they have been at number 17 for years and years and years. We can be so thankful for our freedoms here, but it doesn't mean that we just get to gloss over the words in the Eighth Beatitude, because there are still things to teach us. And remember that the Beatitudes are progressive, and in order to understand true discipleship, we have to be living out all eight of those Beatitudes. So what I think we can learn from this lesson today is how do we handle numbers one through three, which is what's happening in America, maybe to none of you, sometimes to someone you know, maybe to someone you have been involved with in your life. But how do we also prepare ourselves in case we go from 4 to 17 one day in this country? And then thirdly, God, I think, can use these passages to remind us there are people at number 17. Pray for those people. And if you ever want to do more about that, go to the web and look up uh, Voice of the Martyrs. Anything under persecution, and there's a lot of things you can do, at least in prayer, they'll tell you what to pray and who to be praying for. And then Jesus tells us there's actually happiness attached to persecution. What a great hope for us to think about. So turn in your Bibles to chapter 5, verse 10, and maybe I'll get my Bible. I was so worried about what I was wearing, I forgot my Bible. (laughs) Okay, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First of all, who is it that's persecuted? On your outline, those who are living out the righteousness of Christ. Later on, we'll see Jesus said, it's because of me. It is totally because of me that you will suffer persecution. If you take on his righteousness, you will face opposition from the ungodly. And it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Look at verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So if we're living out faithfully the first seven Beatitudes, we will experience 
number eight beatitude. And Paul serves as a good example of this. Look on your verse sheet, 2 Timothy. Paul said, you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Christ lived opposed to a worldly system that was run by his enemy and today is still run by our enemy. So as we share the standards of Christ, we will share in the reproach of Christ in this dark place. Jesus says to speak and live his righteousness means persecution. What does it look like? He talks about three kinds of persecution. First of all, he's talking about physical persecution. And the word there actually means allowing themselves to be continuously persecuted, which I thought was amazing. Whatever living for Christ meant for these early Christians, they would faithfully continue to be persecuted and make that godly choice. I think the early Christians faced persecutions that we can't imagine and we don't really want to imagine a lot of them. Just to name a few, death by stoning, being covered with pitch, used as human torches, wrapped in animal skins, thrown to hungry animals, imprisonment, torture, burned at the stake, flung to the lions, just to name a few. The righteousness that Jesus is speaking about on this hillside, it would demand an extreme devotion. It would demand a determined obedience. And I think it would test all the disciples of Christ. How genuine were they in the first seven Beatitudes? This last one would be the one to tempt them to turn away from he who they had hungered and thirsted for. Jesus is telling them, my ways are costly. We know that the disciples closest to Christ experienced that. Andrew was crucified, Bartholomew beaten, then crucified. James, son of Alphaeus, stoned to death. James, son of Zebedee, beheaded. John, exiled for his faith in Patmos. We've been looking at his words in Revelation. And he probably died of old age. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, was stoned to death. Matthew was speared to death. Peter was crucified upside down. Philip was crucified. Simon was crucified. Thomas was speared to death. Matthias was stoned to death. Unbelievable for us to even consider. He wanted them to be ready. I think that we think, oh gosh, things have totally changed. That's not happening. And we have to remember that from the days of Jesus walking on the earth to the year 2007 and everything in between, these persecutions have not stopped. We just don't see them here in our country. So our job is to pray and care about those who are being persecuted. Hebrews 11 tells us those who choose death over denial 
faith over fear, to be a witness rather than walk away, it said the world is not worthy of people such as these. And we hear these stories, and if you're like me, you think, I I can't comprehend it. I can't comprehend someone chasing me with the spear, facing being beheaded, being stoned to death. And here's one thing I think. We also can't comprehend how God is there, how God meets with the individual who is standing in the face of death. We aren't experiencing that, so we don't know what that feels like. It made me think of that story in Daniel. Remember Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego? And King Nebuchadnezzar said, You must worship my golden gods. And these three worshipers of God said, We won't. And they took them and they brought them to a furnace and they said, Right now, choose, worship our gods. And they said, We won't. If you throw us in that fire, God will rescue us. But if God chooses not to rescue us, we will still be with him. We will not worship your gods. It made the pride of King Nebuchadnezzar rise up within him. He had them burn that furnace seven times stronger than normal. In fact, the poor men that threw the three guys in dropped dead from the heat that was coming out of that furnace. A little bit of time goes by. King Nebuchadnezzar looks inside the furnace and he says to his guards, Hey, I thought you threw three men in there. And they said, We did. We threw three men in that furnace. And he said, And we bound them up. And they said, Yes, we tied them up. And he said, I see four men walking around in the fire. And they're not bound up and they're free and there's not a thing wrong with them. And the fourth one looks like the son of a god. I think when we face those horrible kind of persecutions, God is with us in a way that you and I find hard to imagine. It is God who gives us the courage and strength. I thought I'd learn something from this comment. One Vietnam pastor who's in prison serving gives us some insight into how you ever get that kind of courage, and he said this, We've learned that suffering is not the worst thing in the world. Being disobedient to God is the worst thing in the world. A great thing to learn. There's another kind of uh, persecution Jesus mentions. Verbal insights. We read that. Insults, I'm sorry. Happy are you when people insult you. Now, that doesn't sound like a happy moment either. It means to throw abusive words at you. And one thing I think we need to remember is that this is all about being insulted for Christ. Sometimes Christians behave badly, and then when they're insulted, they put down the people who insult them. Persecution's always about being insulted for displaying the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus does not walk on this earth anymore. So people that are opposed to the things of God have to look around, and where are they going to vent their anger? At the people who are walking as Jesus walked. And that's what they do. And that's why we can be happy. Because if we're being insulted out of righteousness, we can say, they see Jesus in me. I can be happy about that fact. 
A third persecution is slander. Jesus said, happy are you when people falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Now, insults are done to our face. Slander's done to our back. And they're lies. And they are people telling lies about us. Now, this would not be new to the early Christians. It wasn't new to Jesus. He was called a glutton because he enjoyed fellowshipping with sinners and spending time with people. He was called a drunkard. He was called from the devil. He was called a blasphemer. Now, after he left, they called the early Christians lots of things, traitors to the government. They thought they were involved in orgies. And they called them cannibals. Now, this was because they twisted... Um, the ordinance of the Last Supper and taking the bread and taking the wine, and they heard the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, so they began to call Christians cannibals and spread that word around. One man said this, though, and I loved this quote. He said, It should not seriously bother us when men's curses fall on the head that Christ has eternally blessed. And I thought, what a great truth in that. We have the compassionate words of Christ poured over us. Beloved, forgiven, my own, my child. When we remember that, the words that were being said about us falsely, they don't really matter that much, do they? When we have the words of Christ to remind ourselves of who we really are. We leave false words with our Lord, who is faithful. Paul said, if Christ is for us, who can be against us? What's our attitude supposed to be to these three things? Physical persecution, slander, insults. The king says, rejoice and be glad. This is an amazing command for us to follow. Why can we do this? I think if we have a little bit of a handle on why we can rejoice and be glad, we might be able to do that in his strength. Verse 10 says, You will receive the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's a little confusing. What in the world does he mean when he says we're going to receive the kingdom of heaven? So there's three points to the kingdom of heaven. There's the present kingdom of heaven. There's the millennial, and there is the eternal. Now, I want to look at those real quick. First, look at uh, verse Mark, verse 10 on your verse sheet. Gives us an example of it. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, no one who has left home or families or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, family, fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. We see the kingdom of God there in the present and in the future when eternal life comes. First, if we survive persecution, we are promised blessings, kingdom blessings today. I read this great story of this North Korean pastor. His name is Pastor M. I am. And... Um, he had the police come into his house repeatedly as a pastor and, and tell him he had to preach on communism 
and say good things about it in his sermons in North Korea. Now, he had little kids, he had a wife, and he refused time after time. And finally, one day, they actually even grabbed his wife and kids and put a gun to them and said, you do it or your family dies. And he said it was the hardest thing. And he finally looked at them and said, if they die, I'll be with them later. I'm not going to do it. So they got really mad. They picked him up, drug him away, and threw him in prison. Pastor M was in prison for two years. And then great joy because the United Nations showed up and they had reclaimed that territory. They were setting the prisoners free. They came to him and the people around him and they threw him in another prison because they thought they were communists. And he was yelling out, I'm not a communist. I'm a pastor. I'm not. And they didn't hear him. And they threw him in another prison. Pretty sad. The neat thing is, instead of him being angry at God and giving up, he looked around and thought, I guess I'm here for a reason. I'm going to start preaching to these communists. And he did. And his reputation spread into North Korea into the American missionaries. And they said, we heard there's this really powerful preacher in the prison leading people to Christ. And so they met with the leadership. They got to release him. And Pastor M, over the next few years, preached in South Korea to the communists, the imprisoned people. And what I read was that within one year... 12,000 prisoners were rising at dawn to pray to the one true God. Now, he's a picture of present kingdom blessings. He never saw his family again, but he had many other families that he was involved with, and he trusted God with that. Then we have millennial kingdom blessings. If you've been coming to church, we have been in the tribulation in the book of Revelation. We've been talking about those years. At the end of that time, Christ will come to reign on earth for a thousand years before his final judgment. And those who have suffered persecution, they will reign with him. Look at Revelation 20. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. Those who suffer persecution for his sake will reign with Christ. Thirdly, there are eternal kingdom blessings. When he says, you will receive the kingdom of God, he meant then... He meant in the millennial. He meant in future. And the the best fruit of kingdom life is eternal life. The blessing of all blessings. To live in the presence of our Lord, enjoying his kingdom forever and ever. And then it makes us realize, you know, they can take away every possession I have. They can take away every freedom, every comfort, Every satisfaction of life, it does not affect my possession of kingdom life for all eternity. We become kingdom citizens today and forever, and that is why we are happy. Look at 2 Thessalonians. 
We boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. This is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. He will pay back trouble for those who have troubled you and give relief to you who are troubled. We also can be glad because in verse 12 we learned something. Let's read that together. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our reward in heaven on your outline is great. Remember in Ecclesiastes we learned that a wise woman has what kind of perspective? An eternal perspective. If we have that same eternal perspective when it comes to persecution, we can choose happiness. When we realize nothing the world can do to me has any lasting permanence. We showed a video clip in church a couple weeks ago, and I wanted to watch this one little part again because it's a great example of this. So, Rob, you have that? Well, maybe he left. Ellos torturaron a nuestro pastor y al resto de la iglesia. Después vinieron y los mataron. Y nos dijeron que no podíamos orar ni alabar al Señor. Yo les dije, si me matan, voy a estar con Jesús. Ustedes me quieren matar o me quieren dejar vivir, no importa, yo gano. James tells us, this world is a vapor that's passing away and vanishing. Heaven is forever. And did you notice that Jesus says, great is your reward in heaven. We can't even imagine what that is. Look at Ephesians 3. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us, to him be glory. And maybe you're like me in a little bit. Sometimes I wrestle in my obeying God because I'm thinking about rewards or because I love him. And in reality, our first motivation to be obedient to Christ is because we love him. Jesus was obedient to God because he loved him. But I thought this was interesting. It was also for the joy the eternal joys set before him that it tells us Jesus endured the cross. Look at Hebrews 12. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. I think as they sat on that hillside, Jesus looked deep in the eyes of his disciples, and he said in all confidence, Be happy, when you are insulted, be happy when you are slandered, because great is your reward in heaven. And I think when some of these people, like this woman we just saw, when they looked death in the face, it was great for them to envision the great things God had in store for them in heaven so that they weren't focused on what it looked like mere man can do to them. It's not permanent. Great is our reward in heaven. In 1596, 
in Japan, there were 26 crude crosses made set on the side of a hill. There were 26 Japanese people found guilty for faith in God. And I read about one man particular there, Ibaraji Kun. He stepped up and the official said, Look, just denounce your faith in Christ so you can live. And Ibaraji looked at the soldier and said, You would do well to become a Christian yourself. You could come to heaven with me. Thinking about great is my reward in heaven. And then Ibaraji said, which cross is mine? And they said that last little one. They wrote down and recorded that he ran to the little cross and he embraced it and held on to it. When they nailed his hands and feet on the cross, he didn't make a sound. Ibaraji Kun was 12 years old. In the next 70 years, I believe, yes, there were one million Japans killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Heaven was something Ibaraji was looking at. Verse 12 also tells us we can be happy because we are joining in the suffering of the prophets. We are in good company. We stand in the ranks of the prophets. We know that we belong to God when we are experiencing the same kind of persecutions that the prophets themselves received. It verifies our righteousness before us. Now, I thought I wanted to mention this. What is the king proclaiming here? When you think about it, what were the prophets persecuted for? They were speaking for God. And Jesus is saying, what will his disciples be persecuted for? They will be speaking and living for Christ. When Jesus connects the prophet's suffering in the Old Testament for God with the disciples' suffering in the New Testament for him, on your outline, Jesus is identifying himself with God to these men on the hillside. You know, if you were going up there with your family that day and you were on a picnic and you were at the other side of the hill and you saw these disciples gathered around Jesus, he would look to you like just a mere man. But no mere man can say, and if you're persecuted for me, you'll have rewards in heaven. He's identifying himself with God. What man would have the audacity to say, because of me, you will be persecuted. He was no mere man. And that's what Jesus wanted them to know. Now, there's a great way to escape persecution and suffering. We can choose to know Christ, but not live out the righteousness of Christ. Imagine that a man gets a new job. He's going to be working with some really profane people. So he does his first day at the job, comes home. His wife says, honey, how did work go? And he says, man, terrific. They never guessed I was a Christian. He would have avoided harassment, but he also would have avoided his calling. Jesus spoke against this. Look at Luke 9. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. And he also said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For this is how their fathers treated the false prophets. 
When we are popular with the profane people, we have either compromised our faith or we never had any faith really to begin with. I read about a Kansas City pharmacist. Six years ago, he was arrested. He was diluting cancer treatment drugs. The reason he was diluting cancer treatment drugs was because he was making more money if he did it that way. He did that for his own profit. He had the potential to sell to people what would bring them life. But because they were deluded, he was giving them something that could not help them at all. And I think as Christians, when we water down the righteousness of Christ by being disobedient or by keeping quiet, we have within us the ability to offer eternal life to people But when it's diluted for our own profit, we give them something, a gospel that is not saving, that is diluted and does not bring them life. Jesus says, don't go through life as a Christian wallflower. Wear my righteousness like a grand robe. You are to be the salt in a world that lacks life. You are to be the light in a world that lives in darkness. How do we display this righteousness? We are, first of all, the salt of the earth. Salt was precious in the Eastern world. In fact, the Romans would say, apart from the sun, salt was their number two commodity. They traded things in salt. They paid their soldiers in salt. It was a very, very important thing. So sitting on the hillside, when Jesus looks out and says, you need to be salt, that was a high calling. They knew this was important. I don't know exactly what effect Christ was thinking with salt, because there's many, but I think that the idea of you be different and you bring life was very obvious to the disciples. Robert Louis Stevenson once wrote this in his diary as if this was like an extraordinary phenomenon. I went to church today, and I'm not depressed. (laughs) Christians should spice up life, not depress it. Christianity is to life what salt is to food. We provide flavor in a bland world. The righteous life on your outline is a vibrant life. The lost should look at this vibrancy. They see our saltiness, and they should become thirsty for the source of it. Salt was also used as a preservative. It would arrest decay. And, you know, you have only to turn on your TV to see what kind of decadence our world is in right now. We finally got satellite because I was so tired of trying to find something to watch. And and it's so interesting to me. I'll watch these old Turner movie classics which are so good, and then I'll be flipping the channel as I go off, and I'll catch clips of current movies, and they almost take my breath away because I'm so not used to the violence and the evil and all that's involved in what we sit through every day and is presented before us. We are to influence the world by preserving good in the world by preserving truth in the world, by preserving virtue in the world. We, as salt, represent God's presence 
on the earth. In us, we see the good things of God. We prevent the earth from degenerating even faster than it already is. Ted's been talking about the rapture and when the church is taken off during that time of the tribulation. When the church is removed, within seven years, Satan's powers and the evil become so incredible that it only takes seven years for the world to send into the pits of hell. When the salt that preserves God's goodness is removed. There was a custom that the early Christian churches took over. If a Christian had chosen to be disobedient, before he would come back into the fellowship, he would be compelled to lie at the doorway of their place of worship. And he would invite people to walk across him as they entered. And this is what they would say. Trample upon me, who am the salt which lost its savor. And they would be welcomed back into the fellowship, salty once again, willing to wear the robe of righteousness that God called them to wear. We have a divine flavor that provokes others to come to the table. Look at Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You know, we didn't even read it. Let's read 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. On your outline, the righteous life is a radiant life. We are the light of the world. In this evil world, we serve as reflections of Jesus Christ. So we illuminate truth, we expose evil, we enlighten those who are in the dark, and God didn't send his son to just find a few secret people and hide around and tell them about salvation and eternity. No, they were to spread it. It was to be big. It was to be open, and that is what we are to do as well. In fact... Really, it's the greatest compliment ever paid to a Christian that Christ would call us the same thing that he claimed to be, the light of the world. We, we need to be like him and shine so that others might know him. Jesus said in those passages that those who don't have moral character, those who aren't committed to righteousness, they've lost their saltiness, they're trying to hide their light, they don't have a useful place in the kingdom of God. But if we continue in our light and saltiness, we do face persecution. How do we endure this kind of persecution? One thing that I realized was it seems impossible, but how do we know it isn't? 
because Jesus told us we can endure it. And not only did he say you can endure it, he said we can do it with joy and gladness. So it's not something we have to think. It's really not a possible thing. We can do it because Christ told us we could. But on your outline, in order to endure opposition, we must consider him. Look at 1 Peter. Don't be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. One of the ways we can endure is when we are suffering persecutions. If you're being slandered, if you're being insulted, envision the face of Christ and the mocking and the insults that he went through and share in his sufferings. If you ever are in a hostile country and you're physically persecuted, envision the physical persecutions of Christ that he endured for you. And you can think, I'm sharing in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. I will endure. Look at Hebrews 12.3. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful man so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We consider him and we don't lose heart. We envision his sufferings and we participate in it. To share in the sufferings of Christ is a persecution, but it is also a great privilege. Let me pray. Lord, we want to thank you today for all you suffered for us. We want to thank you for those who call themselves your disciples and were faithful and endured persecution because that's why we're here today. And we thank you that you bless and honor them. And we ask that if any of these things confront us each day, we would choose to not shrink away, but we would be your salt and your light for your glory. And we love you, Lord, and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.